and welcome to Tanja's Talks. Today I have a very special guest. She is my friend for over 20 years. We attended school together, we've grown up together. It's my dear friend Magda. Hi Magda. Hi Tanjila, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, so we are here to discuss racism within the police. So we're going to get straight into it. Magda, what are your opinions on the police? Um, I don't, like, have um, necessarily a negative point of view when it comes to the police. I have a negative point of view when it comes to the way that the police perceive um, the minority community, be that black, um, Asian, especially the black community with everything that has been going on. So um, I have more of an issue of the way they perceive us um, opposed to the actual institution as itself. Okay, I get that. Um, so with you, you've had experience with police and, and it's kind of um, a quiet, you know, sad topic, but it's in regards to your brother, um, yeah. Nuno Cardoso. So Nuno Cardoso, um, passed away within police custody and um, can you let us know kind of the whole story from your side because things are out in the media but we don't know the actual true story um okay so with my brother's case um he was attending oxford university he was studying law um previous to that he had been um dating a girl um she's a white girl and um, and I hadn't witnessed it myself. I hadn't seen it for myself, but uh, my family had commented um, to um, him often coming home with bruises and scratches to the face and things like that. And just before he went to university, um, my uncles did sit down with him and say he had to kind of distance himself from this girl because obviously um, she was troubled. And he did explain that to them. He explained that she comes from a family where um, the dad gambles and I think the mom drinks to kind of mask whatever situation is going on in their house. So she kind of had to fall into that. And so when he, um, just before he applied, or just before he started at the university, there was like, um, I don't know what you would call that, like a little program for mm. people that come from disadvantaged families to like do like mini courses and things like that at the university and being her friend still at the time he suggested that she do it but he knew that he had to keep a certain distance from her and I guess she's a little bit of a stalker to be honest um so I personally had um placed him in IQ which is the student accommodation that I stayed at um at my university and I know it's a really good one and so I had put her there, I had put him there, um, one, because I knew it was a good one, and two, because not to be like me, I think, I just, I knew that she wouldn't necessarily be able to afford um, to actually go there, mm. so there would be a distance between them, because he was actually studying at the university where she was doing a program, so they wouldn't be crossing paths at school, they wouldn't be in the same accommodation, so um, it was fine. But um, I don't know the ins and outs exactly, but somehow she was at his um, accommodation with a friend of hers, and um, there was a dispute about him dating a new girl, and um, he was 
basically trying to get them out of his room. And this information came from his actual um, colleagues that live in the same dorm as him. Mm. So they explained that he was trying to get them out of his room. And the friend hit my brother in the face. And so I'm not condoning it, obviously, but he hit her back. And when he hit her back, she said that she was going to call her brothers and that I think they're in a gang or something like that. She's also white. And um, consequently, they did turn up. Um, They say it was maybe a group of maybe 20 boys um, Mm. that came um, to beat him up. Bearing in mind, this is IQ, you pay a lot of money for it. There is supposed to be good security, but somehow these boys got through security or they were permitted to get inside um, within the compound. And neither of these people, nor the ex-girlfriend or her friend, lived in the accommodation. So why and how these 20 boys um, were permitted to get inside the, the accommodation is beyond me or my family's comprehension. Um, but in the end, they did, and so he left. Um, we don't know what was said, um, but the police was called. Um, and so when the police was called, they've obviously it was obviously a lot bigger than we had imagined because we found out afterwards that they had, like, hound dogs looking for him. They dispatched helicopters, everything to look for oh, a boy wow. who's just simply left his accommodation to avoid any more altercations. Um, and he was stopped by two police officers, and they said, you know, you meet, you meet the description of um, a young guy named Luna Cardoso. You happen to be him. He said yes. Um, they said, you know, we were informed that you had weapons and um, drugs on you, so they're going to search you. So they did, and they found that he didn't have any of the stuff, and so they asked him, his, like, what, what happened, and he explained it to them. And they're like, look, we're going to radio through and let them know that it's nothing that we've been told. You're going to find there a couple of police officers. Just let them know what you've told us and it should all be, you know, resolved. So he did go back to the accommodation and um, he arrived and he sat down with um, his colleagues from his flatmates and they were sat down to eat. And then two police officers came and were speaking to him. Um, and it was absolutely fine. The conversation went well. You see on the CCTV, um, they're like laughing or talking normally. And then out of nowhere, like these four police officers come into the view of the camera and they just get him and throw him to the floor. And then in the end, there was like six of them on top of him. And he was resisting arrest, but he was, we presume he was resisting arrest because he didn't know what was going on. Um, because up until there, nothing serious had happened to warrant that kind of reaction. Mm. Um, as they picked him up, he is a little bit slumped, but I don't know. I can't. T- I couldn't really tell if he was awake or not, but he seemed a little bit slumped. Um, coroners say he was probably dead by then, but um, the police argue that he wasn't, that he was alive and well. Um, they've taken him to the van and um, at this point when they put him in the van all the police officers switch off their body cams and then they switched off the body cams so we don't know what happened within those I think it was like 28 minutes um, they're there we don't know what's happened and then after 28 minutes of them putting him in the van 
they've called for the ambulance. Um, the ambulance came, tried to resuscitate him um, a couple of times. They managed to, I think it was like maybe three times they managed to resuscitate him, got him to the hospital. Um, at this point, um, the police officers there had gotten in contact with the police officers in London. Um, they went to my uncle's house. Um, my uncle wasn't home, but he received like a little note on his door asking them to asking him to call the police um, station as soon as possible. When he's called, they said, you know, he, they just told him that he, was, he felt unwell and that they've taken him to the hospital, but it'll be good if someone could go, you know, check on him. So he's called my mum. My mum's gone to Oxford um, and she got there just in time for him to basically just die. Oh, wow. That was a lot. Yeah. And then they also found um, bruises and marks on him, like he had been hit, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah. his spleen and bladder were ruptured, and he had bruises on his face and his body. And even after he had um, passed away, his body was still jerking. And um, the doctors and nurses say that um, that's like his death reaction. So as he was dying, he was obviously fighting. Um, And so his body was still reacting. It was still jerking and yeah. And then after this, you guys went to court. And you you guys didn't really receive justice. um, No, so we went to court and um, initially they said that, you know, he had choked on a like a golf ball sized um like drug whatever like basically something that was rolled up um to the size of a golf ball um and so the judge had asked them to produce it um and they said oh no it rolled out like somewhere and then the judge was like well he couldn't have choked on it because if it rolled out he you know you can't choke on something that's on your mouth um and so then they were asked to produce it, so that ended there, because obviously you can see on the CCTV that he's talking normally, so you can't have a golf ball size something in your mouth and be talking normally. And mm. then two of the police officers actually came to our defense and were like, no, that's actually not true. Um, he spoke normally, he answered normally, he didn't have anything in his mouth other than a little bit, a little bit of food that he had um, to begin with, because obviously they arrived and found him eating. Um, but he was done before any of that stuff happened. Um, so that ended, it was like pretty quick. My mom says it was maybe like 15 minutes because obviously the police officer, the, the judge wanted the proof that he had this. Um, and so they, we were gone for, we were joined for maybe three weeks and then they came back with the so-called um, drug and the judge basically was like, are you guys joking? Um, you've been gone for three weeks. I don't know where, where you guys got this from. Um, if, like, he had it, it should have been something you guys would have found easily. Like, so this is, it, it's not it's not acceptable. We're not going to accept this. Um, but they, they tried to get it admitted into court as evidence. So when they done that, they had to fingerprint it. And basically, it got thrown out because if some the way that my brother's fingerprint apparently was on it, according to their uh, um, forensic scientists and their people, um, the thumbprint was 
the wrong way around and what it actually looked like it was, it was placed oh, onto wow. it. So it wasn't a natural someone touching it. It wasn't put naturally. Like the fingerprint was at an awkward position. Mm-hmm. And so um, the judge was like, no, um, because based on their forensic scientists, obviously, they're like, no, this is not, this was not, he didn't touch this, this fingerprint was placed. Um, so that was thrown out. Um, but at this point, we didn't have a jury yet. So this was just to build a case to actually go to court officially, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so then they kind of, I wouldn't say they admitted to it, but they were kind of more in like, you know, he resisted arrest, and so it was a lot more pressure needed to put on on him. And obviously he had a weapon and all those kind of things um, and how it kind of works in court, which is why I kind of understand it from the police's point of view. I'm not condoning what they've done, but I understand from their point of view in the sense that if you get a phone call saying to you, for example, in your case, um, if I called you up and I said, you know, Tanjila, I went to a house and um, Cam opened the door with a knife, mm-hmm. like you would presume, you know, the worst like maybe he attacked me with a knife and it was something serious um but if you were to actually see it how we were able to see it and how the police obviously saw it um was you know he had a normal butter knife that they were eating with um there was no attack but if you're getting that call you're going to react to that call um and I believe that the police reacted to that call and they just reacted, which is what my main issue with the police is. They often just react and they don't analyse the situation. So mm. you had four sets of police officers that actually were able to analyse the situation, actually sat with him. But then you had four police officers that just reacted. So they've just come in and they've just, based on all the information they've received, yeah, all guns blaring. And that's what, that was the outcome of there. And so um, because... Um, the jury had to receive the information the same way the police received the information. The CCTV was actually not admitted into the court, so they didn't actually see the realities of what happened. They didn't see the supposed weapon. They didn't actually see his demeanor, his behavior, because they weren't allowed to because they had to see it the same way that the police received the information. And the, the police received the information in a hysterical kind of way the warden of the their floor that lives like within the accommodation made up stories um what reason till today we don't know why he he says that he received that information but when he was actually interviewed they asked him did you see this and he's like no i didn't see it then why did you call it in like this i don't know so um although obviously it's her our family deeply till today but at the same time I can't be 100% angry at the police because you've got these calls that come in like this you've got people that cry rape and they've not been raped just because they want to to get back at someone and this is basically what the girl said she said that she called the police because she knew obviously he's black and she thought he was just going to get arrested for the night she didn't think that he was going to die like you're not allowed to do that. It's not fair, not only on us as a family that's lost someone, it's not fair on the police because you've had helicopters out. And from what we found out is 
Oxford doesn't have a helipad. They've had to dispatch that from London. And that costs taxpayers millions of pounds. Just that dispatching of that, helipad, of that helicopter cost us a million pounds. So basically, us taxpayers, myself, my mum, my sister, we paid, we contributed to getting a helicopter out to search for my brother. You've got hound dogs out there that could actually be looking for someone dangerous or could actually be out there looking for a young child, a lost person, an elderly person. But no, they were out there for no reason looking for someone that, okay, in hitting her back, he did commit a crime. But really and truly, you did provoke it. And you can't say that you done it because you thought he was just going to spend the night. It's yeah. not a reason for you to waste. It's not justifiable. It's not yeah. justifiable for someone to lose their life. It's not justifiable for his six flatmates to today be traumatised because they watched it. And you're allowed to walk around scot-free. And how has this, how has this all affected your family? You know, it's really traumatic, obviously. And also the fact that the media's played a huge part. So at the first, the media didn't report anything. It was really quiet. And then when it came out in the media, it was like um, painting him to the, like this perception of this, you know, he's a bad person. You know, I like think, the stereotypical, yeah, how they did not dog it almost. Yeah. It, it just, it, um, it allows them to justify um, the behaviour because if you don't have something that allows you to justify the behaviour, then what is the reason? I know that sounds very like Cardi B-ish, but what is the reason? Why did mm-hmm. you do it? Like, why is it okay that um, a young man, white man, in America goes into a school starts shooting innocent people and he walks out of there um, with his life and he's even offered food and drink but then a young boy who's at the prime of his life at a university studying because you when we were younger you'd hear that like no these young black boys that got found themselves in the situations because you know they were dealing drugs they weren't working they weren't being productive members of society but yet you've now got a young black boy studying at Oxford University, you don't get many black people, rich or poor, studying at um, Oxford University, studying law, wanting to make a difference. And then this happens. So what is the reason now? So you have to come up with something. I'm not going to be here and paint my brother as an angel because I feel like that's also what hinders us. A lot of when you see these cases of young black boys that are killed, you go to schools and interview them. Oh, he was a, an amazing boy. He had so much. Don't lie. It's going to make it worse. Because mm. if you start uncovering things about them, you then start to kind of um, justify what the police done. At no point in time have we ever said he was an angel. He had his moments. He had his spats with the police. he done the stupid things that little boys did up until 15, 16 years old. After that, there is no reason. There is no reason to justify that. And how has this affected, like, your dynamic as a family? And how have you guys kind of tried to move on from this or move forward in life with this? I don't think you ever move on or move forward. It's always at the forefront. I don't think since the day it happened, I've ever not thought about it. I think that's the first thing I think about when I wake up and the last thing I think about before I go to sleep. I, I relive every moment of that day I know exactly what I was doing how I felt like when my mum called me told me she was going to Oxford because my brother was not well I already knew that he was dead like honestly I already knew he was dead so I had to go to work 
and I couldn't physically do it. Like, I was in my bed and I was crying. And my cousin came to me. She was like, why are you crying? Your mom's going to see him. He's going to be fine. And I just said to her, he's dead. Like, it's just a waste of time. He's dead. It's intuition, isn't it? They always say that. Like, Yeah. yeah. And I already knew. So then my mom was like, I went to work still and I was teaching. But I was like, I explained to my student, like, um, you know, this is a situation. Is it okay if I just have my phone on the table? And he was totally understand. He was like, yeah, you know, if you need to go outside and answer the phone, by all means do it. Um, but I kept, you know, reading the message. Mum was like, oh, no. Um, they just let us know that he's going to have an operation to the heart, whatever. Um, I kept, That's when I came out of my lesson. It takes me about 10 minutes to get home. Um, to drive home, I drove home. My sister called me as I called like he was dead. So it was just, since then, I don't think we live normally anymore. You always worry about what's on TV. Is it another black boy that's died? Do you change the channel quickly so my mum doesn't see it? Um, do you, like, what do you say to my young black cousins? You know, you go out, you're weary that they're going out. Um, do they know what to do? Do they know how to behave? Do they know what to do? Like, because at this point now, we don't even know what to do. As a black community, we don't even know what the police wants from us anymore. And I don't blame 100% the police. I blame the people that are at the top. Mm. The people that tell you that if you see an Arab man with a beard, be wary of him. If you see a black boy wearing a hoodie, be wary of him. Like, why are we not wary of a white boy wearing a hoodie? Why are we mm. not wary of a white boy wearing a, uh, with a beard? You know? Mm. That, that's not coming from the police. This is what the police are being taught. And it's and, ingrained, basically. And it's ingrained. It's ingrained within us. Yeah, I is. remember when 9-11 happened, like, I have you and we had many Muslim friends growing up. And I remember when 9-11 happened and the way it was like a doctrine that they were just putting it into your head and you started to fear this. And then I was like, wait a second. I know this religion. I know these people. Why am I scared? I'm not scared of the religion. And we were, in, we were in year seven then, I remember. It was like, it yeah. was like our first week when we started. Like, it yeah. was literally the first day of school. It was, yeah. we were, it was our assembly. It was like a half day even. And it was, from then on, it was just put into your head. If you see an Arab person, be it a woman, a man, you need to fear them. And as I got to, like, within maybe a year or two, I kind of reflected to myself, I was like, why on earth am I scared of these people? Like, I know these people. I know this religion. There's nothing to fear. It's the same way that we could talk about Christianity. I'm a Catholic. You've got the KKK. Where did they derive from? That doesn't mean that I'm going to go out and start killing people. Yeah. But what that. you're taught in the police, I believe in the police academy, you get taught this. I genuinely do believe this. And that's where my issue with the police is. My issue with the police is when they see a black person, they react completely different to when they see a white person. Because you see um, white people that abuse their wives, you see white people that go out shooting in schools, you see white people doing the same things or worse as a black person, but they will never be treated the same. And that's because they're taught not to treat white people that way. Yeah, I agree. Because even, for example, my husband and his group of friends, so they're all like Asian, black, mixed, like ethnics. Whenever they go out with friends, they would get stopped and searched from the age of 13. I think yeah. when they were 16, they all got stopped, like they all got searched right in front of their school. Now yeah. it'd be like a huge deal. But back then, mm-hmm. like in a way, all the teachers were like, they got in trouble with the teachers because they got stopped and searched. Yeah. But, yeah. But one teacher, she was like, I think she was way beyond her time. 
she was like oh that was racism that wasn't right that kind of thing so like as a as as a me for myself like I haven't really seen anything racist with the police but for example I've seen stuff when I've been with my husband or his friends and that and it's not I'm not blaming all police and I'm not saying or it's like you know at the end of the day we all go to the police when we're in trouble yeah regardless um it's just what's ingrained and it's I think a lot of it is to do with scapegoats and stereotypes Mm -hmm. and that's what I think I hope is slowly going to change we can either get better we can get worse um I think I think um now things will start to get a bit better because the media is so um instant you know um back in the days it will take a while before it got to BBC News or whatever it is. Today, we don't need the BBC News. We've yeah, I don't, watch, I don't watch BBC. I don't watch BBC we've got, <laughs> we've got so many different platforms that allow the media to get out there. In the, Like with the George Floyd, we were watching that as it happened. Yeah. You know, so you can't now come and twist the story on us. We watched it from beginning to end. We know what happened. I'm not saying that George Floyd didn't commit crimes. Possibly. Selling fake dvds doesn't warrant doesn't warrant death yeah under any circumstances you know so um i think that things are going to get better now because the police know that they are being watched they know that they're being watched and they know that we're going to want um accountability we're going to want at least an explanation even if we feel like we don't get justice we're going to want an explanation we're going to want to understand from how did we get from a to z we're not going to accept anymore um, you jumping us from A all the way to Z without going from B, C, D, E. We're not accepting that anymore. And with a new generation yeah. coming in where they're more, um, they're less racist. Um, they're Social more media savvy. Yes. And all of these things means that it's going to make it a lot harder for the police to do what they're doing. But at the same time, it's going to get better, I hope, because we're having this younger generation going into the police as well. We're yeah. having this younger generation going into politics. We're having this younger generation as teachers, as doctors. So if this younger generation is the change, they already proved themselves to be the change. They drink less, they smoke less, they do less drugs, they're more accepting, um, they discriminate less. So moving forward, we're hoping to get these minds into the tops of any kind of workforce and hopefully they will be the change that we, this country needs. We've seen the change come about, you know, maybe I think two, three weeks ago when the first police officer in England for, was um, sentenced for the death of the black person. Yeah. You know, we haven't seen that. Yeah, We've never true. seen that. And that's come off, I believe it's come off the boat from the George Floyd situation. And I believe more of this is going to happen, especially as the younger people going into the police force, the army, um, hospitals, wherever it may be, that we do find is um, um, discrimination. There will be a change. There has to be a change, as you said. It's only going to change either for the worse or for the better. Yeah, and I think as well, people are more um, educated, and they kind of say it how it is now. Like, yeah, um, I told you about the story where I was um, picking up Aiden from school, and mm-hmm. there was this, there was this two, three boys. There's one Asian boy and two white Caucasian boys. And I think they were saying something to him, and then the Asian boy was like, "Are you just are you just picking on me? Are you, do you just hate me because I'm brown?" And he just said it like that, and I was like, "I would never imagine saying that as a child." And he just said it, yeah. and then he, in a way, like 
the Caucasian will kind of step back and it was like oh no 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 it's not because of that and it made him think okay you know what maybe I shouldn't do this or yeah yeah like I, that was a huge like wake up call for me and I, I do hope things change but what you and your family have gone through you know you can't even describe the feeling that you guys probably feel every day um in regards to you like how has your opinion changed on you know on how you feel have you have you got anger have you got have you accepted like how do you feel I've definitely got anger and I don't think my anger will ever go away mm. um, I don't have anger towards the police I have anger towards these six police officers and that's what we need to bear in mind when we we encounter situations like this we can't generalize a group of people because then mm. it makes makes it okay for you to generalize um, Muslims. Mm. Then it makes you okay for you to generalize gay people, white people, black people, whatever it may be. You can't generalize a group of people. You cannot. That's not okay. I will never, ever, ever, ever accept anyone saying to me that they justify something bad happening to a police officer because they're police and my brother died in the hands of the police no I don't accept that that's not okay not for me anyway I hate those six police officers I hate them with all my heart and I will never ever 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 be able to stop hating them sometimes when I I go to church um as Catholics we're not supposed to um receive the communion if we've got um hate in our heart so we first have to you know confess and um, ask for forgiveness before we can receive the communion and I haven't been able to receive communion since my brother has died because I have that much hate in my heart mm. and it's something Genuinely. that we just have to live with like you can't it's really yeah. hard yeah I can't at this point in time I can't justify forgiving them mm. it doesn't make any sense to me at the moment because I don't have kids yet um and when I do have kids, whether I have it with a white person, whether I have it with an Asian whatever it may be, my kids will be black. Yeah. And do I pray to God not to have a son so that okay. I will not go through what my mom went through? Because I can't imagine being in my mom's situation because best believe if that was me, I wouldn't even go to court. I'll find out where you live and I'll bomb your house. Yeah, and that's, that's like it. a natural reaction as a... Mother, yeah. I couldn't, I don't understand how these mothers continue to live. Honestly, I don't know where they get the strength every single day to not just wake up, but to laugh, to smile, to go out, have fun, like to live your life as if you don't have, as if we don't have a picture of my brother in the corridor. That's the last picture. He's going to university. How do you know this would happen? We wouldn't have celebrated him going to Oxford University. That was a massive celebration for our family. Like, he, he's not just going to university, he's going to Oxford University, he's going to study law. Imagine, he's going to finish with a law degree from Oxford University. Had we known, we wouldn't have sent him. Yeah, but that's another thing. Not... Like, think, preempting things, like, you, you just don't know, isn't it? That's just in general life. And yeah. It's crazy how things work out. It really is. It's it's um, it, it's sad. It's unfortunate. But at the same time, I hope that it's for the greater good. I hope something comes out from this. I hope lessons were learned. I hope um, changes will be made. I see steps 
being taken, but not enough steps being taken. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, but personally, in my opinion, I'm not a supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, yeah, I know this, yeah. And I don't support Black Lives Matter, not because I don't support the the, the cause, of course I support the cause, I don't support where it's coming from. A lot of us don't do research when we donate to charities um, and when we support certain causes. When, I think it was you, Tan, that actually had sent us the link yes, to go I did. donate yeah. um, on the Black Lives Matter site. And as I was about to go and donate, um, a video came up of this, she, she, she's an older woman, and she's explaining like what you need to do before you go to donate, and she kind of showed you like the steps that you need to follow to search the link and find out the the source of that link. So where is it coming from? Who is it created by? Where does the money go to? And I done that, and I got the worst shock of my life. Yeah, she Even... basically forwarded people, didn't she? She took all yeah. the money. No, basically what she explained was. Like, when I went to the links, I actually managed to see that because you get to see who the, the, the creator basically is. And I think they're called Blueprint or Blue something along those lines. I cannot remember exactly. And then when you actually see who they are, what they're about, more than 50% of the Black Lives Matter um, funds goes towards Donald Trump's campaign. Oh, I'm wow. not going to support Donald Trump. I'm not paying for Donald Trump. I'm not supporting Donald Trump. So by giving to Black Lives Matter, I was actually giving to the Donald Trump's campaign. Oh, wow. And a lot of us don't know this. So she did, I have to find it. And if I do find it, time, I will forward it to you. Maybe you'll want to send it to your supporters. But um, there is a way for you to actually find out the main source, where the link is actually coming from when it comes to charities. Yeah. So you can actually see where your money really is going to because it has like a pie chart and it yeah. tells you, for example, um, it was like maybe 10 or 15% actually went to the Black Lives Matter cause. You had, I think it's 57% went to the Donald Trump campaign, something. It was just a huge chunk of it was going to all these other places. And then you had the tiniest little red part of the pie chart. I will never forget it. This tiny little part of the pie chart actually goes towards anything to do with the black community and that, that's another thing about charities now i don't even like donating because i just don't trust anything yeah like, it makes me feel so on edge yeah um, definitely another thing we wanted to speak about this is our last topic was colorism because mm-hmm. you're angolan so yeah. i know like you guys vary in color like how asians vary mm-hmm. in color i think you guys vary a lot more in color and yeah. I, obviously, colorism exists in all ethnic minorities, but you know, how has this affected you? Um, I I wouldn't say colorism has necessarily affected me. As you said, obviously, um, I'm Angolan, and um, our family is very diverse in colors because obviously, being colonized for such a long time by Portugal, um, you know, we vary in color, hair texture, eye color, height you know, body shape, all of those kind of things that come with um, colonization. And in my family, we do vary in colors. We go from, um, I would say, a little bit darker than Heather 
a friend of ours. Um, to, <laughs> like everyone, Hemmers, Caucasian friend, <laughs> right down to stuff with me, you know, and that's our family, and it's normal for us. It is, we don't see a difference within our family, within our family. But I know that my mum, for example, just the other day was, um, you know, telling us stories of her childhood and how um, I'm 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 a dark I'm dark skinned, but as a as as a young child, my hair was of a very silky texture, and Angolans not being the brightest people, um, your hair if you've got what they consider to be you know mixed hair you're deemed to be mixed race and so there was a time where there was the kind of war that was going to break out in Angola where they wanted to get rid of you know the mixed race people and the white people and my great aunt had a fear for myself and my siblings because although we're of a darker complexion our hair for them was considered to be of mixed race hair and so she was you know telling my mom to hide us in a basket or wherever it may be. Um, She herself was disowned from her own immediate family, as in her brothers, because her brothers were dark-skinned and she was mixed race. She was actually mixed race. Her dad is um, white, uh, but her brothers had a different dad, so they were dark-skinned, darker than myself, and she's mixed race. Um, And within our family, in the past, we have had this issue um, in my dad's family, we wouldn't necessarily have this issue, but we do like to joke up, like with each other. We do call sometimes, we've got an aunt that we do call her mixed race. It doesn't seem as bad in Portuguese as it does in English. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's honestly not a, like, a horrible thing. Like For example, um, this is actually something that you guys don't even know. My nickname at home, up until maybe, even now when I go back home, it's difficult for people to call me by my name. They very rarely call me Magda. Even my grandma, like, if you say, oh, Magda's calling you, who the hell is Magda? You have a secret name that you've never told us before. Yes. <laughs> um, it's actually Blackie. <laughs> in, in Portuguese, it's Pretinha, but um, Preta is black, so black female. And then Inha is what we add when we're trying to make it cute. So, um, like, it's makes it like small or whatever but we have those kinds of names in Portuguese for example we have Clara Clara means light um if someone is like there's a small child a little girl um, we'll call her Clarinha which is lighty it sounds bad in English obviously yeah but we do have that in Portuguese and it's very very normal but that's not because we're discriminating it's just sometimes the child is maybe very light light-skinned or dark or whatever it may be and they make a cute name out of it but I know that there are parts of um, Angola especially I think when we're bored where we're bordering with Congo where they do have a problem with that they they use bleach on their skin to to make them fairer yeah. um, because being dark-skinned is deemed um, as a bad thing and you still unfortunately do have self racism in Angola where if I was to go to a a restaurant with a fair skin person I would probably be the last person to be served and um, if they come with the bill I probably wouldn't be handed the bill they'll hand the bill to 
the fairer skinned person because they'll just assume that that's the person that has the money. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I think that is kind of similar in our culture as well because we have words as well in Bengali. Um, and like, you know how you said how um, they have this cute nickname, so we have that. Yeah. And then the bleaching is like a big thing in our culture as well because, you know, fair skin. Um, but I, I do think colorism is getting a lot more um, kind of, you know, a coverage now and people are highlighting yeah. the experiences and talking about it a lot more. I've got like cousins that have spoken to me recently that are darker skinned than me and then they would tell me the experience of what's been said to them. And I'll be like, oh, wow, like I had no idea, you know, I wasn't yeah. aware of it. Um, but yeah, like, I think you're quite lucky in regards to colorism and your family being so open-minded and not really being affected by it which is good obviously not all families are like that and um in regards to your brother you know thanks for sharing your story and opening up because I know it's something that I actually didn't know I didn't know the whole story about your brother um so thanks for opening up and thanks for coming on is there anything else you'd like to say um no that's it just thank you for having me um, should we do a shout out to Heaven Hodentation? Yes. <laughs> and the babies as well. Yes. Shout out to the CSG group um, and the babies. Yeah, so these are our Camden girls. These are our school girls that we've grown <laughs> up with. <laughs> so th- thank you so much, Bagda. Take care. You thank too. you. Bye. Bye.